Good morning, everybody. We're going to look at 16th Psalm today. Um, the last time I, I, I've been trying to, for my own personal study, and when I get a chance to teach, is to try to teach out of the Psalms fairly often. One of the challenges of the Psalms, the Psalms are very old. Some of them are very, very old. And the translation that we take, you've heard of the Septuagint, that was the translation of the Old Testament that was around in Jesus' day. So in Jesus' day, what, Jesus, what the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament is almost always what's called the Septuagint, which was a Greek Old Testament. Well, what was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew, uh, some Aramaic. And so even 2,000 years ago, they were already using a translation. And anytime you have a translation, you're going to have words from one language to another that don't fit one-to-one. You're going to have thoughts, phrases, examples. And in Psalm 16, we have a couple of those things. Remember that when we read our Bible, whether you're reading a King James Version or a New King James Version or an NIV Version, an ESV Version, which is what I'm going to be reading out of today, you are hearing English that was first put down to page in the 1400s, 1300s, Tyndale and some other guys were starting to make English translations, the copies that existed of the Greek texts and from uh, Latin versions that had been in existence for a long time. So we're going to talk as we first get into this about some variations that we'll even see right at the beginning of this psalm, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading out of. There's really no difference. It's our understanding of language that we deal with now. And one thing, particularly the older the version is, there's nothing wrong with an old version of the Bible. There's nothing wrong with a new version of the Bible if they are faithful interpretations of the language, which they all try to do. And read the preface of your Bible. There's one in almost every Bible. And it will explain how the translators tried to do it. Even the King James Version translators wrote a great preface to their Bible. said, this is what we're trying to do. At the time, they said, we're trying to make a good Bible better by using language that people understood. But you run into things in the Psalms that are kind of unique in difficulties. And so uh, you go back and you start surveying people's interpretations, different preachers, how they preach different Psalms. And you will find things that are completely different. More so than almost anything else. And you can get into prophecies and you can get into revelation. You can find a lot of different ideas. But they're right there in the Psalms too. Some people will say, well, this is purely about Jesus. Say, this has nothing to do with Jesus. It's about David. Some will say, that has nothing to do with David. It's about God. We say, well, those are three. If it's God or David, well, there's some big differences in what it might mean. Are we the speaker? Is the church the speaker? Is Israel and their worship and us and our worship as Christians? Are we the speaker? So... Let's get down, let's read it. I'm going to read uh, through the whole thing, the ESV version. And then I'm going to step through a couple of things that you may see if you're reading. I know a lot of people in here will have New King James, King James, maybe some NIV, maybe some others. But I'm going to focus on just a couple of things that we see that might sound different, but they're really not. A lot of the Psalms have a little piece right before that says what this Psalm was for. And this one says, Amiktam. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that anywhere close to the way the person who made up that word would have said it. The thing is, nobody knows what that means. A miktum of David is the superscription. 
If you have notes in your Bible, it mine says probably a musical or liturgical term. Don't know. We include it. It's in your Bible because it's been in the text for a very, very long time. But it's instructions about something about this psalm or what it is or what the tune is or how it was to be done. We don't really know. It doesn't change the meaning, but that's, that's there. So let's start in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, if you're reading along, that was on the screens, you probably encountered a couple of things that that sound different. Let's look at that. At the very beginning of this, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That's the ESV translation. Um, Very similar in NIV. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. New King James would say, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Trust, take refuge. King James says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. So right there, let's let's just use what translators have taken a word and said, this word in the original text, for our word, we're going to say trust, or we're going to say take refuge. And what our challenge is, Do those mean the same thing? I say, well, yes, they do in different ways. Let one help you define the meaning of the other. When we say trust, what do we mean trust? Maybe you think of whatever savings and trust, or you think I trust someone. Uh, Trust has often been related to faith, that you all trust the chairs you're sitting on, to use the example you've heard many times. If you didn't trust it, you wouldn't be sitting on it. You might be in a state of tension ready to pop out of there because you don't quite trust it. But you trust it enough to sit. You don't think it's going to fall over. Because you trust it, you rely on it. You take refuge in it. So there's a meaning there that is the same. I take refuge in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. In um, verse 2 is where when I was studying, I got hung up, but really... If you read this, they say the same thing. In the ESV that I read, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I'm going to go all the way to King James now and say, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee. A couple of other things in your Bibles to think about. People make a lot, put a lot of faith in translation 
sometimes misplaced, but there are useful tools in certain Bible translations. And one useful tool that is in certain Bible translations, it is, don't think of it as a rule, don't think you're offending the Lord if your Bible does not capitalize every pronoun that refers to deity. Um, I've had people come up to me after the song service and say, there was a, a pronoun that said you, and it's for Jesus, and it wasn't capitalized. <clears throat> and I would say, okay, I'm sorry. And it is useful. It helps us to understand. But it's not sinful if you don't do it. I've tried to explain this to my girls one time. Our language works that way. If you were in German, you capitalize every noun and every pronoun. So then what do you do? You purposefully make your language wrong by not... So there's things about that. But if you look at this, that the isn't capitalized. And in the King James, it probably would have been capitalized. That the is me. That is, the, this, that is David saying, oh, my soul, me, you, this is, I think, kind of weird. You said to the Lord, and the Lord is all capitalized. And do you know what that means in your Bible? That means that name of the Lord is Yahweh, Jehovah. That's when the Lord said, tell them my name is I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you. So when you see in your Bible it says L-O-R-D, all capitalized, that means in the text it means Yahweh. I am. That is the special name of the Lord. There's many names of the Lord in Scripture. And they all refer to God. Though sometimes when it says Lord, it doesn't refer to God. The Lord can be a person, but... We, you have to dig into the text sometimes to get that. But when he says, my soul, me, I have said unto Yahweh, to the Lord, you, Lord, are my Lord. You're my God. And then he's continuing the thought and saying, my goodness does not extend to you, Lord, not to me. So when you read this in, in King James, it says, thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee. It's not the Lord saying, my goodness does not extend to you. So if you're reading this psalm one day and you think, there are many confusing things in the psalm. This doesn't have to be one of them. That is not the Lord saying, my goodness does not extend to you. But why does it feel like that? Well, if you're reading King James, the next verse says, but to the saints that are in the earth. So if you think the Lord is speaking this, You might say, okay, well, your goodness doesn't extend to me, but to all the saints. But that's not what it means. This is David speaking to the Lord and then speaking about his relationship to other believers. When he says, thou art my Lord, God, you're my Lord, my goodness does not reach you. And this is where I think the other translations are more helpful. As the ESV says, I have no good apart from you. The NIV says, apart from you, I have no good thing. And the New King James says, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Just to clarify some things before we dig in here. This third verse, when it says in the King James, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Whose delight? David's delight. This is David speaking. He's saying, I delight in the saints that are on the earth to the excellent. So let's go back. 
ESV, I think, clarifies this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Whose delight? David's delight. But not just David. We'll get to that later. There's more than one person can be speaking here. And so we will be speaking this. Go to verse 7. Here's a little also oddity. Uh, Not an oddity, but we don't speak this way anymore. Uh, Verse 7, ESV, we read it. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. If you're reading King James, it says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. This says the same thing exactly. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Does your Bible translation say that, my reins? So what are reins? What do you think they are? You probably have a note. If you've got a note, you might find it helpful. Your reins are your kidneys. My kidneys instruct me in the night. And a lot of guys particularly are saying, yeah, they do, several times a night. (laughs) Get up, go, quick. To the Hebrew poets, to the Old Testament writers, the kidneys are like the heart. They didn't understand, they knew anatomy, they gutted animals, and I'm sure had seen what a human gutted was like, and knew that we had organs, but they didn't know what all they did. But over time, it was entrusted that the kidneys were the heart, the soul. That's where, the, that was the center of you, your kidneys. So if you say like, my heart, my gut feeling, they would think, well, my kidney feeling. Okay, I get you. You mean that deep down. We, we don't think that way now. But that's what it means. We think the same thing. We say heart, my soul, my heart and soul. They said, well, the kidneys, that's where it is. We know that a heart, physical heart, is just a muscle. You can switch one out in a person. They're the same person. So don't get worried about this. You switch kidneys out. But it is interesting to read. Make sure you understand when you say my heart, my reins, my, my heart. And we'll get into what that means. And then verse 10, the last thing on a... On the text differences. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I like, we'll read each of these versions because they each say it a little different. The New King James says the same thing. It says Sheol. The King James says, For you will not let, leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. So we have a different Sheol or hell. And then NIV translator said, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. So let's talk about the concept of Sheol. You see that in the Old Testament a lot. You see the word hell in the New Testament. Or I'm sorry, Old Testament a lot. You see the word hell in the Old Testament. You see the word hell in the New Testament. You also see the word Hades in the New Testament. These do not always refer to the same thing. Particularly in the New Testament, hell is more often talking about the eternal place of damnation for sinners who are not redeemed. That is eternal hell and damnation. But hell as a word can also mean, when you see Hades, sometimes it means this, but in the Old Testament when you say Sheol, it meant the grave. For the eschatology end times belief of, from what we know from the Old Testament, Jews believed in an afterlife, but they also believed that when you were dead, you were in a place in the ground, a realm of dead people that wasn't eternal torment and it wasn't heaven, but they also use it for just the grave. So if I said, we're going to bury them in Sheol or we're going to place them in Sheol, 
We can interpret that, understand it in that time to mean we place them in the ground. That's where the dead people are, in the ground. Now, there's a bigger concept of the dwelling place, of their being kept there for a future. But don't read, don't think when he says Sheol or when he says, if you're reading old uh, King James, that he's saying hell, that I was condemned to the place of dwelling of demons. That's not what he means. Okay, so this psalm is a psalm about joy. We just came out of the Christmas season and we sing songs of joy. Joy to the world. A song we don't sing here, but uh, you've probably heard, How Great Our Joy. Joy, joy, joy. Oh, how joyfully. There's so many Christmas songs that have the term joy in them. And what do we understand joy to mean? Happiness, bliss, fulfillment, heaven, joy. We're to be joyful. And I think that's what Psalm 16 is saying. So we talked, last time I taught on the psalm, I said, you know, the psalms, one of the things as we read them, they are the hymn book of God's people. They are the hymn book of Israel, and they are the hymn book. We have more beyond this, but they are part of the hymn book of the saints, which is us, which is the church. And so they're to be sung. And so how would you sing them? What are the instructions? How are you to know? How are you to, to and it, I'm not saying like, Do we crescendo here or get quieter here? But how do we feel these songs? They're meant to be felt. They're meant to be prayed. They're meant to be believed. So let's walk through this again. Preserve me, O God. Stop there. What does this psalm start with? The psalmist comes at the very beginning and he says, I must have you or I have nothing. Preserve me. What's the opposite of preserve? Rot, death, gone, preserve, hold me, keep me, Lord. And who does he go to for this request? Straight to the top, to the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, for in you I trust. He goes to the one that he trusts, knowing that his request can only be answered by the one who preserves. To God, to the Lord. In verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That alone is a huge statement. I have no good apart from you. Lord, all the good that I have is from you. That's saying the same thing. Every good thing comes from Father. Every good thing. If in end, unless further say, if it's not from the Lord, is it good? It can't be. Because if it's good, it's from the Lord. Every good thing is from the Lord. No good apart from you. Now, we can, there's a lot of things in our life we pursue. There's a lot of other things. There's a lot of small lords in our life. And there's a lot of things that come through them that are good. But where do those things ultimately come from? The Lord. If you're a child... When your parents give you good things, I pray that every parent does, where are those gifts ultimately from? The Lord. They're not from us. God, through us, providing good things. They're not, we do not deserve the worship for them, nor do those who give them to us. It's the Lord. So every good thing. So as you go through life, you would receive good things. People do good things to you. Are you grateful to them? I hope so. 
I hope we're grateful people. But are we grateful to God? Why do we say the blessing at meals? Because every good thing comes from the Lord. We recognize for a moment that God provides. He provides everything. Everything we need came from him. If it's something we don't need, if it's something bad, do we thank the Lord for it? Or do we look and say, am I serving? Am I thanking? Am I giving honor to other things besides you, Lord? He governs all things. He is our good. If, if there's nothing good, then we have nothing to be thankful for, right? Because every good thing. So how do we go through life and th- some, some things are not good? I get on the, and I'm sure Brother Barry could share this. The other people on the stage could share this. Pastor Jeff could, could share this. When you stand on the stage, particularly on Sunday after you know somebody has buried someone or lost something, lost a job, and you look out, it burdens your heart because you think some people came in here with some things that just aren't good, that are hard, that are hurtful. But we trust the Lord when the Lord says God is working out all things for the good of those he loves, for his people. We trust that there's good in things that we don't always understand. And if there is good, where does it come from? It comes from the Lord. And that's what David says right now. I have no good apart from you. Keep me, hold me, preserve me, God. Now, go to the the third verse. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. And whom is all my delight? Whose delight? David's delight. You're in church this morning, and I think you probably get this verse, but let's, let's suss this out a bit. David says, I love the people of God. That's what he's saying here. The saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Is he raising them above God? No, that would be idolatry. But he is saying they are of incredible value. Your people, Lord, are the people that I love, the people that I want to be with, the people that I want to lead. He says that as as their king, though this psalm may have been written before he was king. But he's saying... I love to be with your people. I love to be. And so the church, do we do we believe that? I think you do. I'm guessing everyone in here loves everyone in here. But maybe a little bit more, a little bit less sometimes. Maybe we got a little thing we're holding on to. Just keep that back there or here in my kidneys. Because we're people, we are imperfect people. And David's imperfect. So he's about to say something, though, that may give us a problem. We should delight in these people, in the saints, and not just the saints in this church, but the, saint, the true saints in any church. We should delight in them more than we delight in worldly people, in those who are of the world and not of Christ. We should delight in them above all things. They are there for our good, and if they're there for our good, where did they come from? They came from God. Do we have the right not to be thankful for something that came from God? No. God is our good, and part of the good that he, he does for us is he puts us in a church with other people for our good. And he says, I want to be part of this people. And then he continues into the next verse, in verse 4, and he says, The sorrow of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. 
So David says here, he's made a contrast. He's saying there's the people of God that I love. They are the excellent ones. I probably can never think too highly of them because of my own weaknesses. I'm talking to myself now. If I love them in the Lord, I'm not idolizing them. I'm thankful to God for them. But then he says, but I'm not going to go to these other people who multiply their sorrows in sinfulness. That don't worship you, Lord, that are not yours, that do not love you. They worship others. They pour out blood offerings. We look now at an ancient book and we say, okay, well, going around the world right now, I'm sure there are some places that are still doing blood offerings. There are. There's people in our city that play around with things like that. I don't think any of them genuinely have heartfelt belief in it, though there are some in the world. But there are religions, but we don't have to just limit it to that. Look around the world and see what people put their everything towards. That's what they worship. We worship culture. We worship pop culture. We worship media. We worship sports. We worship money. We worship politicians. We worship ideas. We worship sincerity. Well, maybe they're wrong, but they're sincere in their beliefs, and I I respect that. Not if they're wrong. People worship all kinds of other things. And do we... Look like David and say, like, those who pour out blood, they're multiplying sorrows for themselves. I will not join with those. I will not take their names on my lips. The church, we are in the world, right? We're not of the world. We are salt. We are to be salt and light. But how can we do that? We're just, if, if the salt has lost its savor, if we're like the world, the David is saying, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be like those. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So in, if you think of the ancient Israelites and they've come into Canaan and what happens? Their land is divided by the families, by the tribes, and each person gets a piece of that because they're an agricultural society. They need land to raise animals, to farm. Your existence is that lot line. Now, we consider those pretty important too. No, not everybody in here, but probably a majority of people in here, you own your home or you have a mortgage at least to own your home with a little assistance and someday hopefully scratch that other name off of there. But... Those lot lines are important, right? Your neighbor decides to build a fence five feet over, you're probably not going to be okay with that. I suggest you not be okay with that. In one sense, David is saying, the lines have fallen very good for me, the place. Now, he could be talking about the whole nation. Lord, this land that you have provided us, I think it's true. I think it could mean that. He could mean his tribe, He could mean, like the Levites, what was their portion? They didn't get a portion of the land. But what do they get? They get to worship in the house of the Lord. Which David, though he's not a Levite, he acts like one. Probably better than most. And he recognizes that whatever it is that we've been given, just like he says at the beginning, verse 2, it came from God. The lines have fallen for me. It's not by chance. I have a beautiful inheritance. You are my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. We talk about lot. 
like we use for our property. And we also use that as like their lot in life. We should use that phrase still. And what do we often associate with lot? Lots. We associate chance. We say, throw the dice. Okay. So is David saying, well, the dice fell in a good way for me. Even if he is, who does he say the dice are controlled by? God. He holds the lot in his hand. There is no chance. And he's saying, what has fallen for me is from you, and it's good. We should do the same. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So David has said now, Lord, I'm thankful for your counsel. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your truth. What he says next is that in the night your counsel ministers to me. How does he say that? In the night my heart instructs me, or my kidneys. Well, what is your heart going to instruct you with? What you put in it. When you have the counsel of the Lord and you put it in there and you wake up in the worry of the night. So you can look at this a couple of ways. I was studying this and I saw people talk about it in a couple of ways that I think are both true. I think probably most of us have experienced both. Nighttime is a fearful time. You look in scripture, it points to night. Night is often related metaphorically, symbolically, as darkness, as fear. You go out throughout cultures. What do we do? We come inside at night. We gather around the light of the hearth at night. We turn the light switch on. Why? Because in the darkness are unknowns. And for much of history, and still in many places of the world, and many places in our world, in our, even in our city, there's dark places you don't want to go because things happen in the dark. Things happen in the light, too. Be sure of that. But the darkness is often stands in for that. But something else happens at night for the believer, and I think probably, hopefully, we should do more of this. Often we're too tired by the time the night comes around. But the night, how many, I know there's people that have to work at night, people in our church that have shifts that take them to the night. But generally, if you think of agriculture, what would be the night time? Time to restore, but also... No responsibilities. I don't have to go uh, take care of the fields at night. So nighttime is a time of thought, a time of rest, a time of recuperation. And part of that rest and recuperation is thinking on the things of the Lord, the counsel of the Lord. You read some of the, I think uh, Spurgeon has written about this, and they would say, as I thought in the night, this comfort came to me. I was able to put together the pieces that were bothering me and came to peace. And that's what David is saying. Your counsel brings me peace in the night. I hope if you find times in the night that are fearful, you wake up, your thoughts running wild, turn to the Lord. His counsel will give us peace. That's the promise he's made us here. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Uh, This was one where there was a little... Variation in the text that I thought was helpful. The NIV says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. When he says the Lord is before me, think of this as he's following the Lord. He's doing two things. About, he, he references the Lord in two different ways here. He says the Lord is before me. But I think the picture is, because of the second half of this, when he says, the Lord is beside me, and I shall not be shaken, is that as we journey through this life, that we should follow the Lord. Consider that the Lord is before us. And why should we consider? Well, he is. 
We may think he's not. We may run the other way, but you can't get away from him. The Lord is everywhere. He is beside us. And he says right there at the beginning, in you I take refuge. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So if you expect good and you expect to not be following the Lord, you're foolish. But the Lord is before us. We follow him. He is our leader. He is our protector. But he is beside us too. There's a song we've sung in the past choir is his song, and it's based off of an old, old hymn, way old, early church days. It says, above and before me, behind and beside me, Christ be all around me. And he is. He is around us. Just continue and finish up the last few of this. Some of the meatiest part of this, but we'll go quickly. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So he has in this section kind of come back right to the beginning. And I wanted to read a couple of quotes I found that I thought were really helpful. Um, Matthew Henry, who, who, they were super popular, so you see them all over the place. But who's ever read a Matthew Henry commentary? Yeah, that... It's one of the early commentaries that, you know, just were easy to get. Matthew Henry was a Puritan, and he wrote this short sentence that I just think says, says it so well about joy. My heart is glad, David says, is joy. My whole being rejoices, and my flesh dwells secure. Those things are all related. Holy joy is the oil to the wheels of our obedience. I like that quote. Holy joy is the oil to the wheels of our obedience. It's hard to obey when we're insecure. David says, my heart dwells, my flesh dwells secure in the Lord because I rejoice in the Lord, because my heart is glad. And John Owen, another Puritan writer, and he said it, he's verbose, but this is a good quote. He says, true believers rejoice in what God is in himself. Whatever is good, Amiable or desirable, whatever is holy, just, and powerful, whatever is gracious, wise, and merciful, and all that is so, they see and apprehend in God. That God is what he is, is the matter of their chiefest joy. Whatever befalls them in this world, whatever troubles and disquietment they are exercised withal, the remembrance of God is a satisfactory refreshment unto them. For therein they behold all that is good and excellent the infinite center of all perfections. When we can thus think of God and what he is with delight, it is, I say, an evidence that we have a gracious covenant interest even in what God is in himself, which none has but those who are spiritually minded. Owen is saying, when we can take joy in the things of God, we take joy in God. And when we do, we live the life of God. Of the spiritually minded. When we find our joy in God. Not just the things of God. Because they're inseparable. That's what David is saying here. And he finishes. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your holy one see corruption. David says. I know. That in all this life. My joy is in you. My joy is in your people. My joy is in following you. And in not following those who do not know you, who do not love you, who worship other idols. But he also says, 
And my joy is this, my hope is this, that you won't leave me in the grave. You won't abandon me to the grave. But then he says something that later on, Peter and Paul will both reference that David is talking about more than just himself here. You will not let, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. Well, what does corruption mean? Well, he's talking about Sheol. He's talking about the grave. And everybody that dies, the word corruption means what happens to the body. It decays. And it decays fast. And it's not the kind of decay of, oh, my knees hurt or I can't see as well. That's going on anyway. But the decay of death is fast and final. The rot, we talked about at the very beginning, preserve me. Well, the opposite of preservation is corruption. The psalmist here is saying, you will not let me see corruption. Is that true? Did David not see corruption? No. David had a grave. And we see the clarity of this. Turn to, uh, it'll be on the screens, Acts 2. Peter says, he references this psalm, verse 25, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I am not, I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Because brothers, I may say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter's saying, David died, and his tomb's in there, and his bones are in there. Being therefore a prophet, now he says David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Paul says it again later. He uses the same scripture, and he says the same thing. He says, David was talking about Christ. Christ came and he did not have corruption in the grave and he rose again and he did that for you. That you could be saved from sin. And so, to take this fully around, quickly. You read this psalm, you try to sing it in your heart, in your prayers. And the last verse is the best of all. We'll close it as our prayer. But... You read this and you think, how, does, how do I say this as David? And you can, because why? We are righteous. Why are we righteous? Because we don't sin? False. We sin. We have sinned. But we are righteous. Why? Because this person that David was prophesying about, Christ, was righteous. And what did that righteousness do? In our faith in Christ, in our salvation, that righteousness is put on us. It's imputed to us. And what is taken off of us? The sin. So when you read David talk about his righteousness, whose righteousness is he talking about? Christ. So read this psalm as David. Read this psalm as a psalm about Christ, who is at the Lord's right hand, who loves God's people. He died for them, for us. 
And then read it for yourself. Read it as a believer. Read it as a member of the church. And close it with this. Verse 11. You make known to me. That's David, Christ, and us. Little Christ's. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We live in a world that corrupts so many good ideas, so many good truths. And one of the truths is, is that we were made for incredible joy and happiness through the Lord, who is our joy and our happiness. Not just the gifts he gives, but him, him very self. The unfathomable. Makes everything fade. And, and that's what we're called to. So uh, let's pray. We'll go. I encourage you to read through this psalm. Think of it in those ways. And worship the Lord as we sing today. Think about that. The joy that we have in Christ. And that all that he did so that we could have it completely. As David said, he did and would and does. Father God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of eternal life that we have with you, but also for the joy and hope and gifts that you give us in this life now. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people. Help us to be good church members who love one another, who stir up each other to good works, who encourage one another, who help each other to know the way to follow you, Lord, and glorify you. Be with us now as we worship you in the service, as we hear Brother Barry's message to us today, as he opens your word. We thank you for him and ask that our hearts would be ready to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.